In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Be seated. Well, with the back wall of the church now open, we get the ocean breeze, but we also can wonder together as a community if uh, that's a real trumpet playing over at the Army-Navy Academy or a CD, something I've wondered for many years now. If you have done even any degree of study of the New Testament, whether it's a high school class or college or a seminary or even some church studies, you are probably aware of uh, the first four Gospels and uh, that they are divided into two sections. Uh, there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and those are referred to as the synoptic Gospels. Uh, and then there is John, which is uh, set apart from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic comes from the Greek synopsis, which is defined as a general view, but the word itself literally means uh, a seeing all together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a great deal of source material. A lot of the information is overlapped and repeated in those three Gospels, which is why they're called the synoptic Gospels. But St. John is different altogether in its view. It has been pointed out that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all written from the point of view of the disciples as they are experiencing these events in their time with Jesus. In other words, the reader of those Gospels experiences with the disciples their discovery of who Jesus is along the way. Or it might be better to say, we experience with the disciples their misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Because the truth is that for most of the journey in the Synoptic Gospels, the disciples do not understand who Jesus is or what his true purpose is. For instance, the only confession of Jesus as the Christ in all of the Synoptic Gospels comes from St. Peter, when he makes his confession, a passage that I'm sure we're well familiar with. Peter, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the one time that Jesus is confessed as Christ in the synoptics. But do you remember what happens immediately after that confession? Jesus blesses Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then he proceeds to tell the disciples, how it is that he must now go and suffer and die. At which point, Peter rebukes Jesus, and he says, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter even more forcefully when he says, Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Imagine our Lord calling you Satan. No sooner has Peter professed that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus turns and calls him Satan. Why? Because Peter doesn't really understand who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Because the truth is that nothing will stand between our Lord and the cross. And anything that would try to separate Christ 
from his cross, which is to say the work of salvation he has come to accomplish, it is straight from hell. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we encounter the disciples grappling to understand who Jesus really is. But not so in John. John's gospel is altogether different. John follows Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not only in order of New Testament books, but in his perspective on who Jesus is. John comes after the synoptics, both literally and figuratively. The Gospel of John is the latest of, written of the Gospels. And St. John tells the story through an entirely different lens. You're familiar with the saying, hindsight is 2020. That's a bit of how St. John tells the story. He doesn't just tell the story of Jesus. He does so with all of the benefits of wisdom and understanding that have been received from the Spirit of Truth at Pentecost. So John introduces the reader to Jesus' true identity from the very beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the very first chapter, John the Baptist sees Jesus and exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God! that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is identified in the very beginning of the gospel book as the very lamb who will sacrifice himself on the cross for the sins of the world. And the whole book, the whole gospel of John is rife with this kind of rich theological imagery. Far too much to address in a single sermon. What I'd like to do is fast forward to the scene that we encounter on this Holy Thursday, a scene that takes place this night in our Lord's life, his betrayal and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. All three of the Synoptic Gospels describe our Lord's prayer of agony in the Garden. Matthew says that Jesus is sorrowful unto death. He falls on his face and prays three separate times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Mark also says that Jesus is sorrowful unto death and that he prays three separate times, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Luke is the one who tells us that Jesus is in such agony that he sweats blood as he prays, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. But in the Gospel of John, there is no mention of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is no mention of agony or sorrow unto death or sweat like great drops of blood. In John's Gospel, there is no mention of a cup, at least not yet. In the Gospel of John, there is also no description of the Last Supper. The scene begins with Jesus rising from supper and proceeding to wash his disciples' feet. He then gives them a rich theological discourse, and he prays with and for them 
in what is often referred to as his high priestly prayer. And this whole exchange takes up nearly five chapters of the Gospel of John. Then Jesus and his disciples proceed to the garden. But there is no mention of praying with his disciples. They are confronted by the band of soldiers who will arrest him. Now, all four Gospels describe this scene when Jesus is betrayed by Judas, when one of the disciples cuts off the ear of a soldier with his knife. John alone names the armed disciple. It's Peter. And this is the kind of thing that John does in his gospel. It's as if he is filling in blanks from the other three. Like, look, everyone, okay, everybody's writing about this anonymous disciple. Okay, the spaz with the knife who attacks the soldier, it's Peter, okay. And it is here that Jesus finally mentions the cup. He turns to Peter and he says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? If the synoptics give us a window into the inner turmoil that the Son offers to the Father in prayer, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. John, in turn, reveals the result of that prayer. Firm resolve to carry on with his mission to the cross. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? John's gospel gives us the bottom line. Jesus has done his praying. The Father has given him his cup. He has accepted it, and he will not be diverted. Again, nothing, not even the gates of hell, will stand between Christ and the cross he will carry the death that he will suffer for the life of the world. In all four Gospels, the Synoptics and John, it is made crystal clear that the cup which our Lord is referring to is his death on the cross. The cup is his death. And it is the very same cup that he shares with his disciples on the night before he dies, instructing them to do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. It has been said of this Monday Thursday liturgy that it is a burst of sunshine in the gathering gloom, which is, of course, a reference to the celebration of the first Holy Eucharist on the eve of our Lord's suffering and death. But in truth, there is no separating this blessed sacrament from the cross of Christ. They are, in a mystical sense, one and the same. The disciples may not have understood at the time what was about to happen, but we can be sure that our Lord did. He was fully aware as he shared this sacred meal with them and proceeded to wash their feet and pray for them that in just a few short hours he would be beaten, tortured, whipped, his face spit upon, hung on a cross, and die. And he knew that he would do it all for them. As he celebrated his Holy Eucharist, he knew exactly what was going to happen next. 
He knew it was for this that he had come into the world. He knew that it would be hard, painful, difficult, scary. He did not desire the pain or the suffering. He desired to live and to love and to serve and to save. But the cross was the only way to these things. The cross was the means to the end, which is our salvation. The cross is real. And it represents the act of the human will to die to the self, to surrender the self out of love for God and neighbor. It is in this sense that the cross emerges as the icon of perfect and true love. It is in this sense that the cross is ever before us, always in front of us, even with all of its foreboding. There is no question of our calling. There is no if. We may be filled with sorrow even unto death. We may even pray fervently that the Father would allow this cup, this calling, to pass from us, our own cross, our own death, our own thorn in the flesh. But in the end, we are called to follow our Lord and imitate his resolve, that nothing will separate us from the mission of the cross that we are called to in his name, to celebrate these holy mysteries in remembrance of him, to proclaim his death by them, and to unite ourselves to him through these mysteries. St. Paul explains, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We don't just remember and proclaim the Lord's death when we partake of this meal and participate in it. We share in his death. And we are strengthened to pick up our own cross, to endure our own death, which is to say loving God and neighbor first, dying to self, that we might share in his resurrected life. On the night before he died, when Jesus first celebrated this great sacrament, it was its own foreshadowing of the cross given to his church that we might be partakers of that same cross. With St. John, we have the benefit of looking at this story with 2020 vision. Every time we celebrate this great Thanksgiving and receive this blessed sacrament, we know what lies ahead. It is no mystery. Our death awaits. Our cross awaits. Our call to love God and neighbor first and die to ourselves awaits. His body and his blood are our food, our nourishment, our strength for the journey of death, which is the journey of love, which in the greatest mystery of our faith is the journey of everlasting life, which lies ahead. There is no mystery about the cross that lies ahead. The mystery is that our Lord has transformed suffering and death into salvation and life through his cross. I pray that we would remember each and every time we celebrate this great Thanksgiving, whether it's a daily mass in the chapel, a great high feast on Easter Sunday, or anything in between, every time we celebrate this great Thanksgiving, may we remember that betrayal, suffering, and death lie just outside the door. That in fact, the meal itself is our nourishment to mount the cross ahead. 
May we face our cross with the same deep devotion to love and serve the Father as his Son did. Every time we celebrate communion, may we bear in mind the order in which these events take place. That it was first celebrated on the night before he died. And that the very same is true for us. In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.